Welcome to the Fourth Watch Podcast, a curated conversation with some of the most interesting voices in the media. I'm Steve Krakauer. Today, I'm joined by Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist Wesley Lowry, making his second appearance on this show, out with a new book that hit the New York Times bestseller list this week. This is episode 47. Lowry's new book is called American White Lash, A Changing Nation and the Cost of Progress. And, well, it's worth the read, and I'd venture to say it's not what you think, I think. We talk Charlottesville and Ferguson, riot porn and the corporate press, and we go deep on how we can bring this country together with more uncomfortable conversations. But we begin with his new book and what led him to write it. Thank you so much for doing this. Um, I, I've interviewed you a few times uh, over the last uh, few years, really, um, and uh, and I've always enjoyed our conversations. And, and I wanted to start with the fact that I really loved the book, and and I think, you know, I, I love great feature writing, narrative journalism, and this book really feels like a great collection of that. It takes you to places, introduces you to people, you really get to know uh, people. And I would I recommend the book to everyone. A lot of the great feature writing that I enjoy is like famous people, um, which is fine. There's good famous people feature writing also, but um, but it's pretty rare to to get that kind of of real narrative journalism about people that are just everyday people in, in America, obviously, who've been affected by by certain of the issues that you talk about. But I, I I really enjoyed how you how you told the stories that you did that that tell a bigger picture narrative about the country. So uh, I want to start there, and 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 I guess also. What led you to this book? Obviously, uh, writing a book is a huge undertaking. Uh, what was the genesis of this one? And anything so far surprised you positively, negatively, as you get your second book out into the world? Sure. Well, first of all, I really appreciate all of that and, and appreciate you noting that. I think that sometimes what's interesting with books is that you don't always, a lot of the experience of a book comes from what the reader's expectations are coming in. Right. And I yeah. have a unique ability sometimes to disappoint people in different directions where like <laughs> they, they want like much more of a strong argument from me and I don't quite give them that or they think I'm going to be more brimstone and then I'm a little more introspective or, or, you know, or, or they want to, especially on these types of issues, they want a 600 page history. And it's like, I love to read a history, but I shouldn't be the one writing the 600 page history. Like <laughs> Henry Louis Gates should be right. You know, like, and so it's like, and so I try to think about like what my role is as a journalist. And I think that it, you know, obviously it's a media podcast, but I think it speaks to some of the challenges in this moment where the media is not that different types of people have always written books, right? But the media ecosystem is so decentralized and democratized in this way that the lanes between like, okay, what exactly is some person's, this person's job versus this other one? And so therefore what the, what their book on this topic might read like versus this other person's versus this other per right? And I, and I think that sometimes there's like a flattening and a blending of that that can make it hard for anyone because you're suddenly trying to, there's not the same kind of built-in, oh, well, in this type of book from this type of person, right. this is what I'm going to get. As opposed to well, when I read the activist book on this or the politician's book on this or the right, the practitioner, the person actually do like the memoir by the person, the historian. The, so anyway, I say all that to say that for me, part of what I do think I can potentially bring to, to such a project is the ability of, of being a professional, you know, narrative journalist, it's telling people stories, sitting down and figuring out how to get myself into someone's living room and then 
download their life and then be able to regurgitate it back onto the page, right? Which yeah. is a you know is a talent. I like to think I'm not suggesting I'm great at it, but I but I but it's a thing that it's that is important, right? And that and that that might be what maybe I can bring to a topic that has no lack of people writing about it or talking about it, but that perhaps I can uniquely do in a way that, you know, as opposed to writing the definitive history or the definitive argument or the, so anyway, I think about all that a lot in terms of what do I contribute to a given conversation or a project? Yeah. Well, it's one of the things I've always really liked about you and, and your journalism. And it's something that, um, you know, I don't think we always necessarily agree, but I, I always appreciate your curiosity and your your open-mindedness. And I think that that's, it's a rare talent as a journalist these days, which it shouldn't be. And it's kind of like the core of what journalists should be. But uh, but I think it is, is more rare uh, than it should uh, in, in today's 2023. Um, I want to start with one of the parts of your book that is actually about the media. Um, and it shows just how far we've come in what feels like a fairly short amount of time. Um, and you talk about Lou Dobbs, uh, who was a mainstay of 30 years uh, at CNN and only left in November of 2009 before going over to Fox. And this is someone who a lot of your book gets into like white grievance politics and and some of the the seeds that maybe uh, were a reaction to to the Obama presidency was there before maybe activated from that maybe led to you know we, we'll get into that a little bit but but look Lou Dobbs you talk about some of what he was saying on the air you know not just when Obama was elected, but for a long time. And I went back and looked, uh, John Klein, you know, no shots at John. I like John, but this is what he said in part when Lou Dobbs was, you know, given his exit from CNN, he said, all of our, all of us will miss his appetite for big ideas. The megawatt smile, larger than life presence he brought to our newsroom. We're grateful to have known and worked with him for years with characteristic forthrightness. Lou has now decided to carry the banner of advocacy journalism elsewhere. Uh, interesting. Okay. All right, that's one way to look at it. But what what do you make of it? And kind of the where the media has evolved, where not that long ago Lou Dobbs had a very prominent place at a place like a CNN. Yeah, well, and, and it cuts in a few directions, right? Because there's a way there are certainly people who would look at that and they would mark that as evidence of CNN no longer being what it once was, and it was more every man or to the center X Y and Z, right? But but what I would what I would look at it and I would note is is how long a place like CNN allowed a lot of rhetoric and back and forth in what was framed as a straight primetime, I mean, one of the prestige shows um, at a time when cable news really was kind of at its heights or, or among its heights. And a lot of what Dobbs said was just factually baseless in terms of how he beat this drum around immigration. Now, that's not to say that, one, the country was not undergoing massive demographic change as it really... It was, immigration is a story of our time, right. right? Truly, right? But but what we see is, is that in what was ostensibly an extremely straight space was Dobbs being able to use his time in the airwaves to frame this national conversation in a way that was pretty na nakedly nativist, very hostile to the immigrants who were coming, and often, most crucially, not factually based, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. That he, he makes this claim at one point about all these un undocumented immigrants, they're calling them illegals at the time, or what, you know, the, the, it's the language of the early 2000s, 
who are bringing leprosy to the United States of America. And when Leslie Stahl on 60 Minutes calls him on it, he says, well, if I said it, then it's true. <laughs> well, look, <laughs> uh, I, that is a, a remarkable thing for a journalist when confronted by a clear factual inaccuracy to declare, yeah. right? And, and and so I think that that, but I think that that matters, right? I think that there is a, I think that a lot of people would say a lot of things about the role that conservative media has played in the gr- white racial grievance of our time. But I, th- and I would agree with a lot of those things. But if we're going to talk about them, I think it's also important to note and pay attention to the role that media organizations and institutions that would frame themselves as much more politically unaligned as believe of themselves to be in no way activists. I think it's important to note their failings here as well. Um, and, and how, and how there was a time when in primetime on CNN, you were seeing things that are not very unlike what you might see in primetime on Fox News today. A look back at the previous time I interviewed Wesley, shortly after George Floyd's murder was making national headlines, and his diagnosis about riot porn in the Acela media. One of the times I interviewed you uh, was after George Floyd, and you told me in, in that interview for um, for the Fourth Watch newsletter about how too much of the coverage that we see of protests or riots is still what you described as riot porn, not explanatory journalism. Uh, and you said, if you ruled the world, 80% of protest coverage would be interviews with protesters, 20% press conferences with officialdom, correspondents walking the street, narrating what's happening to them. And, and uh, you know, it's it, it's something that is not, we talk about, you know, the right media and the left media, but this is just media in general. And, and it's about what is informing the public in the best way possible. I want to ask about Ferguson because you, you do spend some time about that in your book, but also just more generally, as we continue to see coverage of not just protests and riots, but also, um, you know, mass shootings or, or others, what are we missing as a, as a media at large? I think one thing that's hard and, and and I think it's worth framing this by saying, and you obviously know this, and most of your listeners and readers know this as well, right? But I think among the reasons you critique, people who critique media, at least I think among the best people who critique media, are people who love media. I think it's hyper important, yeah. right? That it's actually not a cynicism or a, 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 a intended as an attack. It's that because we believe it's important, that's why we want it to be even better than it is, right? Because right. we understand that there are real stakes and that it's a powerful institution that can be a force for good in, in our society, right? However you define good, even that just means us having an informed society is a good thing, right? That's good, yes. That's good. So, I, But what I'll say is I think that, and this is not a criticism of individual practitioners, right? But I think so much of our media as constructed is actually not constructed in a way that lends itself to being informative. One yeah. thing I like to say sometimes is take a cable news segment or an evening news segment on any topic you want. I don't care what it is, politics, not whatever. And then go to the utmost experts in, in the field, experts of your choice, and say, if given three minutes on national television, do you believe this was the most effective way to inform someone about this issue? In terms of 
what things were talked about, what context was included, what voices were brought in to discuss it, how it was framed by the anchor or the reporter. I, I would venture to say that 99.9% of the time, the people who know the most about the thing would go, oh, no, this was a massive waste of time if your goal is to inform people about this issue. Right. right? <laughs> and I say this from my own experience as someone who obviously has covered lots of issues of race and justice over the years, where I'll get brought on. I said this in a conversation with Brian Stelter uh, for a podcast he's doing, but I'll get brought on. And it's like, all right, race and policing in the history of America. 30 seconds, go. (laughs) Then we're going to cut to a clip of Ted Cruz saying something. (laughs) What do you think of that? And it's like, sure, I'll take one of the most complex issues in the history of our entire country. And in 30 seconds on live television, I will just say stuff. That'll work, right? Like, (laughs) you know, and so... You know, fundamentally and functionally, the 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 way we have structured our information ecosystem is not one that could actually provide adequate amounts of information to yeah. people, right, on any issue. And and beyond that, it's also set up in a way that prioritizes first and foremost urgency, newness, right? The news as a construct. Right. Something is news if it is new. Right. But actually, like most information is not new. Right. Most news is a new data point in a broader set of information. Right. And so even this idea that like what's important is like the most important thing, the concept of the evening news or of the daily newspaper is that the most important thing for you to read each morning is what has happened in the lull between. <laughs> right. Right. Like, and in fact, maybe it isn't. <laughs> Yeah, maybe maybe there's not something so hyperly urgent or I might suggest perhaps there hasn't been enough time to say something thoughtful and informative about it yet (laughs) because our calls haven't been returned or our right. And so we have this whole system that functions on this speed, this urgency, this newness that I actually think does limit our utility as like purveyors and uh, purveyors and providers of information. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's it's so it's it's so interesting. I I uh I've written about this before, but like the George Floyd uh murder, you know, it, it, the original police statement on that uh was not at all like what happened and without Darnella Frazier, we wouldn't necessarily know even what happened and what became ubiquitous there. Um Similarly, I, you know, I, I uh, you spend part five of your book where you literally go back to Ferguson, which uh, has you know real resonance. I would say in with you and your career, you talked to Dorian Johnson, reconnect with him, uh, who was with Michael Brown that day, um, and uh, I actually start my book that came out earlier this year, Uncovered, talking about Ferguson because I do think that in looking at it. 2014, this was really the beginnings of, of, of a few things that I write about in that book about sort of where the media went astray. Um, and, and in all of my research going back to it last year, I didn't even, I, I think you brought a new angle to the story, which is that potentially there was some sort of mental illness that Michael Brown was suffering from, whether it was a, a momentary, you know, a, a short-term thing or, or having some sort of mental breakdown uh, that that was something I had never heard before. But I mean, I, I would just throw a couple things about Ferguson, which is that you write about a couple of these, but hands up, don't shoot was the the rallying cry that became ubiquitous in the media that turned out to not be true. But we only know that turned out not to be true from the next year, Obama Justice Department, which also found that while Darren Wilson may not have had racial animus, a lot of that Ferguson Police Department did. There was 
I believe it was 100% of the arrests for resisting arrest uh, were of Black individuals. That was based on that report. So that was something that never really got a lot of attention. Then, of course, there was the whole how police treated the media. That was kind of the beginning of that. Obviously, you particularly were outrageously arrested for doing your job, and that case continued on. So it was this beginning of so many of these disparate stories that if people, the average person, goes back and thinks about Ferguson, they probably, no matter where you are, no matter if you're a Fox News viewer or CNN or MSNBC viewer, you probably have the wrong idea of what actually happened and 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 the the depth of that story. So, I wonder what you think of of Ferguson in general, obviously, but also you know as as it relates to the media and why you you put a put a focus on on telling that in your book. Of course, one well, I think it, I appreciate all those points because I think there are a lot of really I think there's a, you hit on a lot of things that I think are smart and that are important. I mean, one of the reasons I went back to talk to Dorian Johnson is I was being interviewed for some like short documentary or something about the legacy of Ferguson. And one of the producers asked me, have you, you know, cause I, part being on the beat, I'd stayed in touch with a lot of the people who were involved and kind of knew, you know, I'm one of the people you call if you're looking at Ferguson stuff. Yeah, like, oh, sure. this person's here, go talk to them here. I'll give you this phone number. And someone asked me about Dorian Johnson and I realized not only had he not talked but that I didn't know where he was. And so for yeah. me as a reporter, that meant I need to go figure it out. If I'm going to be the guy, I got to be the guy. Where is he? What's up? And beyond that, though, and I mean this, I, I've had a few stories over my career where I have spent time with the person either during the moment or after where they are for a moment the most sought after interview in the country. Yeah. Right. Which is a weird thing. At any given point in time, someone, some person in the country, in the world has having like, every means of communication completely spammed and blown up by everyone. The right. Character it's, of the, it's day, the yeah. wife of the submarine guy for 48 <laughs> hours. It's the, you know, like the, right. Like you're, you're like literally like, the, not even the internet main character. I mean like main character on this. I was, I, in when I was at the Boston globe before the post covered a bunch of the Boston marathon bombings. And among the things I covered was there was a pseudo controversy afterwards about where to bury Tamerlan Sarnia, the older of the two. Okay. Right. He was an yeah. American citizen. His family's all in Chechnya. He's dead. Where does his body go? Right. What do you do with it? There's no one to claim it. Right. But you can't, but you can't kind of like treat him as like a, you know, he's Muslim. He has to be buried in a specific place. What no one wants. So anyway, this funeral home director in Western Massachusetts volunteered to help coordinate this. <laughs> under his, like his professional ethic is that like every person deserves to be buried. I'm a funeral home director. Right. Sure. And so, and he gets picketed. And so I end up like kind of embedded in this funeral home for like two or three days. And I'm watching him as the entire media, like he is for a moment, like one of the five people everyone is chasing. And so I'm sitting in his office as just the phone rings for 72 straight hours. Right. So I say, I have to say, what's always interesting to me is when someone is that person and they never talk, going back to them later. Yeah, what happens yeah. after, right? Dorian Johnson was the most sought after interview in the country for like a month and then no one called him ever again. And so I was able to sit down and get the most comprehensive account he has ever provided, right? Now that matters, whether yeah. whether you agree with everything he said initially or not. It was I was able to press him a little bit on, well, you said this and this, but also... I was able to ask some follow-up questions, right? That of the person who is one of the only, one of the most direct witnesses to what is one of the most controversial things that's ever happened in American policing, right? Yeah. Whatever he says is valuable. And so anyway, I say that to say that when I think about Ferguson, I do think about 
some of the limitations, right? I think about, uh, so for example, when we think about how it played out in the media sense, so much of the coverage initially was about litigating exactly what had happened. Right. And I, and what I think is hard is that the social science would tell us and the science science would tell us that it's probably close to impossible to figure out exactly what happened in an interaction in which you were not present. That in fact, different people can view the same thing. There was among the Ferguson witnesses, there was a minivan, a family in a minivan, all of whom were witnesses who all described it differently. Yeah. They all had the same vantage point. They're in the same, right? And so I say that this, that's not to say that there is not objective reality and that there's not, the sky is not blue, but it is to say that there is some limitation for our ability on these hyper intense things to litigate through reporting exactly. And, and, and then what ends up happening is it all becomes political. Well, if we can prove this, then our entire program is true. But if we prove this, that in fact, all of my prior beliefs are true. And yeah. so, we, so we embed these like potentially unknowable things, exactly how up or down were Michael Brown's hands, right? And we embed the, in them all of this meaning, which by the way, I guess the thing I like to point out or I like to think about are two follow-ups, right? So the Obama Justice Department comes in, they re-interview folks, they conclude that they don't think that there's conclusive evidence to suggest that Michael Brown's hands were up. And in fact, they probably think they were down right. or not up in surrender, yes, right? Yeah. Which look matters because they had it had become such a rallying cry and had been championed by so many people in the media, right? But in a separate from the media narrative, what remains true is that they also conclude that Michael Brown is hundreds of feet away from Darren Wilson, right? That the question of his hands being up or down actually is largely irrelevant to whether or not Darren Wilson should have shot and killed him. Guy was 400, 500 feet away, right? Like, you, and, and, you know, and so, or at least there's a second question to ask, right? Yeah. It's not the definitive, well, he's exonerated. Everything he did was good. Secondarily, right, part of what the Justice Department, this is something I always point out as a Ferguson nerd, right? The Justice Department was ba did their investigation based in part on the evidence they had, right? And part of it was that, well, Michael Brown's DNA, his blood was on Darren Wilson's gun. Well, but as we know, Darren Wilson checked his own gun into evidence, right? Like <laughs> that part of the problem is like you always have a limitation of you're only as good as like what your evidence is, how good your witnesses are. And that in these cases that are so hyper-politicized, the more you pull, unfortunately, you actually end up raising more. Like what I would suggest is there's actually not a very clean answer. The more you drill in, it's kind of unknowable. Well, I mean, isn't that the same with so many? Like The stories that are yes. important, the stories that are important, it, it's very rarely nuance free. And, and, and no matter what people want that, obviously I get it. Um, but, but you're just not going to get that. You write in the, in, uh, in your book about Charlottesville. And, uh, you know, I was glad to see kind of it, it was, it's, you know, interesting to go back and look at that for sure. Obviously a seminal moment of the Trump presidency, but there's, a large percentage of people that have a point of view on the fine people on both sides, which you give the full context of. Uh, and then there's a whole sort of cottage industry around never said, you know, fine people on both sides, never gave any indication of uh, that Trump, you know, was supportive of people that were, uh, you know, at least had white supremacist leanings or tangential to white supremacy. And the truth is, you know, it's, it's not really either one of those. It's not black or white. And so like so much of this is not. Um, but 
you know, I, I think as you kind of get it, there's not a lot of incentives. What's the incentive mechanism to tell the nuanced story? What's the the system in place to do that within the media structure now? It's it, it, we don't see that as much, I would say. No, well, and partisan politics is the enemy of nuanced truth. And, and part of the problem becomes as practitioners of the media, it's in our interest to maintain relationships with members of all partisan tribes, yeah. right? Both as individuals, but then also as institutions. But the problem is these people with whom we have to build relationships in order to traffic in information have stakes in the game and work the refs, both right. in public and behind the scenes, because they're talking, because they are not tethered to truth or reality or nuance. Right. <laughs> that, yeah. that, and so that becomes very difficult, I think, for the media as an institution to grapple with is what do we do when it's not even about people who are just definitively lying although right. we've we've somehow made that difficult i don't think that's difficult right but but, but but we but we make it very hard what are, what are we supposed to do about this person who wants to lie on television it's like don't put them on television here we go right. but but setting that aside what i think is even more difficult if we could solve that problem what gets even more difficult is what happens when people want to argue about adjacent things that actually aren't relevant to the core nuances of the thing right right like that what happens when the partisan talking points in the places that we retreat to actually are all diversionary and all distraction, right? Yeah. And then what we end up doing is like creating a bunch of noise in the distraction where we like, where there's a, there's a question someone could raise. I'm not, I'm not necessarily saying I would advocate this, right? But there's a world where, where a result of the reporting in Ferguson could have been that people could have advocated for a policy that would have required Darren Wilson to get back in his car and not shoot Michael Brown, right? We don't even get to that because we because we never get to the the facts of the like the actual distance we got so caught in the hands, right? Yeah. Like yeah. there's no other discussion about like any other. Okay, once we've established that one fact, that doesn't actually mean Darren Wilson had to shoot Michael Brown. Right. Like it doesn't. Right. And and what I would and what happened in the years that followed is we saw any number of other shootings and cases where more nuance and more complexity got explored. Philando Castile had a gun. Yeah. yeah. But then we watched the video and we saw, well, that actually doesn't mean he needed to get shot. Right. Right. right? That we actually that in Ferguson got very captured in a very small question. And that is not to suggest that, that small question doesn't matter or that the facts don't matter or that people, uh, you know, that there shouldn't be a hesitance or diligence before running off with these hyper but what's also true is we get caught in this like small debate and that's the fault of people on both sides of it yeah and we actually don't get to what could actually be a much more enlightening complex nuanced conversation that might lead us to create a world where michael brown isn't dead and darren wilson doesn't carry the weight of having killed someone Coming up, the nuanced freeway many in the press cover gun violence generally and how conversations with those we disagree with can bring the country together. Yes, that's next. But first, listeners of this podcast will know I'm fascinated by UAP or UFO stories and the intersection with the media. We recently saw a massive shocking report in the debrief, a small technology and science website that broke news about a longtime Intel officer, now whistleblower, named David Grush, 
coming forward with details on a, quote, craft retrieval program related to non-human intelligence, or NHI. Grush later appeared in an exclusive News Nation interview in which he noted that this program would sometimes, quote, encounter dead pilots in these non-human craft. Meanwhile, journalist Michael Schellenberger furthered the reporting on his Substack with an article citing several military intel contractors that the U.S. was in possession of at least a dozen alien spacecraft. And then for good measure, the Daily Mail recently had an exclusive report about individuals who entered these downed crafts experienced distorted space and time, like how an object appeared to be 30 feet long from the outside, but was as big as a football stadium once it was entered. Okay. I talked to several experts, including one of the reporters on the debrief story. As one told me, if true, this changes the world. Of course, if true is the key phrase. So should the media be putting a lot more resources toward telling this story or not? That's the question I got at in a recent Fourth Watch column. More with Wesley coming up, and I want to tell you that the full Fourth Watch podcast is available exclusively to paid subscribers on Substack. You can get a whole bunch of extra content, including original deep dive columns called Rabbit Hole, like that UAP column I was just reading from, and the full podcasts for each episode. Check it out, just five bucks a month or $50 for a year at fourthwatch.media. Now, back to Wesley Lowry. We we could have a much more nuanced conversation about just sort of gun violence, let's just say, in general, if if it didn't seem like there was this, you know, like, I don't want to even say it. it's not even a hypocrisy, just a very different way, depending on the situation of what gets covered in, in, in what way. Right now, there's a story out of Philadelphia about a mass shooting, and it's just this perfect case, honestly, of like, there's this person, they may be a cross-dresser, they may be transgender, they have some posts that are really pro-Trump and some anti-Biden and some pro-BLM and nothing fits neatly into it. And so it there's, does feel like we're in this moment where how is the Fox News of the world versus how are the corporate medias of the world going to cover this story? And, and that's going to shake out, you know, what happened in Nashville with the shooting there and that we haven't seen the manifesto. There's the Chicago gun violence story or there's any number. And it just feels like depending on what the narrative is, you know, or, or depending on what the, the, the details are, that's when the narrative gets created. And that, I, I think it, I don't know, I, I wonder if you think that that has some effect on on turning people off from, from people that are not overly political one way or the other, from what they're seeing and from how these issues get covered. Well, I think that, I think that for us, as people who traffic in information and who, and who, rely on trust on when we say something it being true there's nothing worse for us than when we say one thing and the tr- and it ends up being revealed that it was more complex it was more complicated that in function we led you to believe something that is not true yeah. right and and that is more and that is not the legalistic well technically it's all accurate right well but when i read this when i encountered this headline when i read the fr- did it leave me believing one thing only to later find out that something else was true, right? That it was more complex, that it was more nuanced, that it was more, right? Now, look, I don't think that our hyper news anchor cosplaying voice of God, I don't think that helps either. Yeah. I think too often we are we have been structurally disincentivized to be like, hey guys, this thing happened. We don't really know what's going on. We know these things. We don't know this. We like, we always assert, right? 
Yeah. And and when we don't know stuff, we assert we put that assertive pressure on the things we do know, which then makes it seem like we're emphasizing those things, even if they are only, even if that's not the intent, right? And so I I say all that to like give the the, the most like generous view of like the new, you know, and I think there are certainly cases where it's more narrative, but we end up in this space where functionally complicated, confusing, contradictory things happen. Because here's what's also true. The world of humanity is not one where A plus B always gets you to C, right? Sometimes a person who, like, for no real discernible reason does a thing or lies about a thing or commits a crime, like, and, and, like, as it turns out, the world doesn't fit into a bunch of convenient preconceived narratives in any direction, right? right? Like, this news story in front of you may not, in fact, prove everything you ever believed. Right? <laughs> it, it may have no bearing whatsoever on anything you believe. It might just be a weird one-off, Right. Um, and, but then secondarily, I think that our, and so our, the, the speed with which we move, the desire to have to be on this stuff quickly, our inability to admit when we don't know things. I, I think that for us, I mean, you've written about this as much as anyone. I think Covenant Catholic is an excellent example of this or some others, yeah. right? Where I actually think the professional media in a world where everything's democratized, where everyone has a printing press called their Twitter feed, where the moment anything happens, nine million partisans and activists are working to frame it, right? Where as many people are getting their news from Tom Cotton's Twitter feed as they are, wherever, you know, like yeah. that I think it's even more important that those of us who are professional journalists, of uh, those who are validly neutral, those who might have some part of, but those who are committed professionals, right? I think it makes it even more important for us to wait, to calm down, to be rigorous, to know. Even if you're, you know, that when you click on my story about this, know that I've talked to everyone. You right. may still not like my presentation of the facts or that, like, but that what's not going to happen is I'm not going to tell you one thing and then tomorrow information is going to come out that leads, or at the very least, I'm going to say, the police claim they killed this man in a medical incident, but we've been unable to locate any witnesses and Wesley's out in the street right now trying to find him. Not yeah. man dies in medical incident headline where I've asserted it as the truth <laughs> when there's an open question about what has happened. It, it's so it's so undermining. No, you're right. I, I got a couple other questions about the media I want to get to, but I, I do want to ask you, uh, go to the very beginning of your book um, and your dedication. And I don't know if you've talked about this or, or not, but uh, you dedicate the book to Kevin Gorkiska, Gorsica. Gorsica. You write, who taught me that the purest and deepest forms of love come not in spite of our differences, but because of them. Uh, and it caught my eye. I, I wonder if you could tell me a little bit more about that. Sure. So Kevin was my college roommate. Um, he actually passed of cancer a few years ago. And so Kevin uh, um, was you know, one of my best friends. Uh, he was someone who was a random roommate of mine, <laughs> right? We signed up from yeah. the lottery or whatnot. Yeah. Uh, we were both from Cleveland. Um, he was from a, uh, you know, he was from a white Irish family on the West side. Cleveland is East West side segregated, right? So oh, all right. the white ethnic people live on the, on the West side, all the cops and firefighters are over there. Most of black Cleveland's on the East side. Obviously that's not a hard and fast rule and places change, yeah, but sure. that was kind of generally what was true. And so, you know, I was like a mixed race black kid from the East side. He was a, this white kid from the near West side, gone to the Catholic schools from the kind of, mm -hmm. you know, and we were hyper similar, but also hyper different. Right. In like all these different ways. And, and, and because of that, you know, became actually really close friends and, and talked about all types of stuff. You know, 
I, I ended up, obviously, my career took a turn it took where I was covering a lot of issues of policing. Kevin's family garage was basically the FOP bar in Cleveland, right? Uh, like yeah. Big cop family. We go, right? Like we were people who the circumstances of the world would have suggested could not and should not be friends, right? In the way yeah. that we, right? And, and, and the reality was our friendship was rooted in something that was just deeper and different than that and an actual love and care for each other an ability to sit and have conversations about hard things and to disagree and know that that didn't really matter because what we were more concerned about was who had money for for Miller Lite that night, you know, we were college yeah. roommates, right? Right. It allowed us to, to exist in a space where we saw each other's humanity. And so, yeah, Kevin's a really dear friend of mine. He passed a few years ago. Um, and so it just, it made sense for me in a book that was in some ways so much about how we as a society react to people who are different than us. Right. People who we, in a human way, might have prejudices towards, right? Prejudice in and of itself is just, it's human. We walk down the street and someone's attract. we think they're attractive or we think they're not. We think they look friendly or we think they look scary. That's not actually based on objective evidence. It's based on our own pre- preconceptions, right? Yeah. There's nothing wrong with that, right? And it, but it's a sense of how do we get past those things to create a space that's actually loving and safe and equal for everyone, right? And, and, I, and, I, and I believe people across the political spectrum when the vast majority of people say that's what they want. I think that's true, right? Yeah. Like it's, that is what we want, right? But so much of that requires our ability to have to take someone who for whatever reason, be it politics, appearance, where they're from, the language, what, what religion, whatever it is, who might be coded in a way that would trigger our prejudices. Yeah. It's like, let me listen to this person. Let me talk to this person. Or let me just say, I don't know anything about you. We're going to be friends now. You tell me, and I'm not a kumbaya, that's going to fix the whole world person. But I do think that that is like fundamentally important to our ability to understand each other and therefore to understand the world we live in. And I, I love that. I, I agree a hundred percent. Um, you know, a little grace, a little, uh, benefit of the doubt goes a long way. I think that, uh, and, and having the conversations, I, I think that that's well, look, so important. Think about it. Think about people in our lives who we know, people we date, we're married to our family members. How many times do we say something and they take it a different way than we intended? Right. These are the people who know us better than anyone else. <laughs> now imagine that now what we're going to do is let's all get on the internet, discuss the hardest questions in the history of humanity, do it with people we don't know, who we're skeptical of, who speak in different languages and, and with different cultural references, who are speaking in a different... And then let's all do it in segments, uh, sentence fragments, right? <laughs> this will be yeah. a recipe for us to have, like the great dialogue that I think that so much of our like public square is set up in ways that would never allow us to hear the other people much less allow us all to agree upon, okay, these are underlying facts. Let's agree yeah. that the sky is blue and so therefore, right? We can't even get to that because the way we have so much of our conversation is so incentivized to never allow anyone to agree that the sky is blue. Yeah. And 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 I do think that, you know, the digital aspect of it is crucial to this, right? It's it, 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 the disconnected nature of the way we have discourse now. Um you know, if we were having these kinds of conversations like IRL, you know, like, like you and your roommate did, I mean, it would, I think it would blunt a lot of the worst instincts among, among us. And it just, you know, it's getting worse and worse potentially because of that. But Well, cause I think, cause I think very often in, in person conversation, conversation, not debate, but in person conversation, 
it incentivizes hearing what people are intending to say, not necessarily litigating where the commas are and what they said, right? right? Written yeah. communication is totally different, right? Where, where it is extremely easy to read a sentence in a way that is different than the speaker intended it to be read. Like I actually was not making that point that you are now mad about. <laughs> right. And, and now, and now, but now when I point that out, you're incentivized to go, you're just mad that I caught you. Like you, it ends up in this thing where there isn't an ability for good faith in one direction or the other. Right. Even yeah. though it's completely possible to either misread something to not have worded it the best way. That's actually right. not what I intended. I intended this other thing, not the thing that, right or to read into something something that's not there because of our preconceived well what you're saying is x y well actually no that's not what i said i said this right. other i meant this the opposite of the way you're taking it or i meant the and so in person conversation there's a different like direct accountability right because i have a different vested interest i'm sitting across from you and first and foremost i'm vested in not offending you so much that you like attack me right? yeah. like, like, truly like like in an interpersonal conversation i'm invested in the space remaining one that is like safe and not hostile and right like versus where we're all just keyboard fighting with each other no one has any incentive to not have things turn hostile and, and i think all of that then leads to a level of i think bad faith is overused but it leads to a level of inability to navigate hard things Right, because we're so caught up in again, it's all kind of pedantry, and and and, it, and it's difficult. And by the way, we've all done different readings, right? We, yeah, I'm coming in like with this massive factual understanding about X, Y, and Z. You're coming in with this massive factual, and so we we can't we speak different languages. There's no means for us to talk to each other. No, and also it's like a performance half of it because it's out in public. It's like yeah, no, I mean we, we can talk about this forever. One hundred percent. I mean, I don't know if he still does it, but I did a piece about Trevor Noah a few years ago. And he, I did a piece with Trevor Noah a few years ago, about Trevor Noah a few years ago. And I remember him talking about how he, I don't know if he still does it, but he said he would DM with a lot of like conservatives on Twitter. And he was like, okay. we have like way better debates there. Right. Cause it's not this like performative, like I dunked on Trevor Noah. Now no. yeah. everyone's retweeting me and that we're actually like, I can ask a question or they can push back like where we can actually do this thing. And I think that that, is very hard, right? It's like, how do we, you know, all of this, this all is making me sound way more like hippie than I am, but it does like, it's like this question of like, what does it mean for us to like facilitate spaces again, where like people are able to like navigate difficult things and that navigating difficult things requires a level of like safety is not the word I want to use, right? Cause I don't, cause that now carries an implication, right? But it means like, you got to know that like, if you trip over something, I'm not going to be like, and see, I knew you are personally a terrible person because of X, Y, <laughs> right. or vice versa, right? I make a small misstatement that is tangential to the bigger policy thing we're talking about, but now we have to have a eight hour debate about like, and it's like, that's not even what I was talking about, you know? Right. What do we, how do we create that space again? You know? Yeah. Yeah. Doing the things that are harder uh, than uh, no, I mean, I, it's a, uh, it's fascinating. I mean, I, like I said, we could keep talking about this. Let me ask you um, two quick final things before the last, uh, the last, you know, uh, lightning round here. You've worked in a variety of newsrooms, um, CBS, Washington Post, done great work for GQ, had a quibby stint. Uh, big picture, you know, 60 second top view. What do you make of where we are in 2023 in the media space uh, and kind of how things are shaking out as we, as we look into another election year? Look, I, I think that 
you know, it's going to come across as kind of Marxist of me, but I mean, I, I really do think that we've got some real like market failures, right? That I think of cute, I, I like to think about the media as part of our information ecosystem, right? That we believe that facts and information are vital to our democracy. And yet we constructed the system that provides us with this vital utility in a way that the way you succeed in it is to sell more of it. Right. Yeah. And, and so if the, and so then that's not to say that marketability or, or popularity is not imp- an important part of getting people to do things that they, having salads that taste good makes it easier for more people to eat salads. Right. But, but what is also true is that if our goal is to get all Americans to eat salads, the solution is probably not to build a bunch of McDonald's. Right. And so that's the, and so I think that we, what we have is a real difficulty print digital broadcast all over the place where fundamentally we're all slave to, to audience, to capital, right. To traffic, to subscribers, to ratings, to right. Like to ad sales, all of these things that actually, right. I don't, I'm trying to sell you salads. (laughs) Like if the goal is to provide you nutrients, I don't know that, the the one you know the way to do it is but we have to convince everyone to proactively pay for the salads or that we have to get advertisers yeah. to pay for the salads or that we have to it's the salad that can go most viral is the one that wins like I don't think we end up with a very good salad. Good point. Uh, all right, last thing before the uh, the final thing, um, I, I, I ask you about this. This was uh, in your intro, I believe, um, about how you didn't capitalize B uh, mm. for black. And uh, it's interesting. I, I was an African American studies minor in college way back 15 years ago or so, uh, yeah, more than that. Um, but uh, I, we, I, it was through that that we had this conversation where I've always capitalized the B in black. I think of it as oh. like um, African American, you would capitalize black if you, tra- you know, you know, swap it out for black, you would capitalize that. Doesn't have the same for white because it doesn't have this, you know, it's not like Irish American. I don't know. Anyway, that's what I've always yeah. done. I don't know if it's right or wrong, but you describe it as that, you know, you think of race as, as a, a social construct, essentially race as, as a fiction. Um, so this is not a short answer necessarily, but if you could, um, what was your decision behind that to not capitalize it? Sure. Well, I think that in this specific context, right. And I, and I don't have, I have a lot of friends and contemporaries who do it the other way. Right, who capitalized it is now the standard to capitalize the being black. Right. Right. Which was not always the case. Right. Um, but for me, I in this project, in this book that was specifically about in large parts explicit white supremacists. I don't mean that in the colloquial term, I mean the actual people who want the race war, who want to preach that there are these biological distinctions and that like that for me, and at a time when the polling shows this increased level of kind of white racialized grievance, right? Uh, that for me, it felt important not to do anything that might further solidify this idea of race as biological, right? Now, what I think is different, for example, right? Like Irish American is like an ethnicity, or even African American is like, like where there's ways to describe someone specifically, right? Like someone who's yeah. an Ethiopian American, right? is different than someone who is a Jamaican American. And yet right. when we flatten them all into black, right, we are now creating like this racialized group yeah. that actually from a writing perspective provides less information than if we'd been more specific, right? It starts to erase out some of these nuances. 
And, and then there's two, for me, more functional concerns, just knowing how the mass media works, right? Because the reality is what thoughtful people who have room to contextualize do, like very often, like I can come to this decision for the right reasons and someone can come to the opposite for the right reasons and both of our work can be great, right? But the reality is what ends up happening is we've got to we have crime briefs that say a 17-year-old black kid robbed a bank yesterday. Police are looking for suspects. And he's got a big capital B in it, which like then emphasize it. Like the person's race yeah. actually doesn't really functionally enlighten or explain anything. Right. And yet now by making it a proper noun, we've like, we, like even further, it's not even descriptive. It's not an adjective. It's like a, it's a proper noun, right? <laughs> yeah. And it's, it's one of the reasons I never liked the old style of blacks or whites, right. Right? black yep. people, black citizens, yep. right? It's an adjective, right? Yep. And an adjective describing a societal, right? Like, and like all adjectives as a society, we decide what it means, right? They, they can shift and change. But, um, but secondarily, and my friends at the post did this and that, and I, <laughs> that they decided to then also capitalize the W in white. Right. Right. Like that, that I knew I was like, someone out there is going to do this weird, like false balancing thing where if like black people have a unique history than the white people. And like, there's nothing that actual white supremacists want more than us to believe that there is some type of solidified white race of people who have some vested interest together. Right. Like, as opposed to it being, okay, there's a societal construct and some people benefit from, right. Like, and, and so for me, there was always that navigation. I might disagree with myself in a year. We'll see, you know, but like I said, for whatever reason on this specific project, right. When I write for different places, I do whatever their house style is. And I, you know, but on the specific project, it just felt like it made sense. And my friend, Adam Serwer did it as well in his book. uh, Clearly is the point in his, in the essays he wrote there. And he had a similar kind of note. And so there's something him and I had talked about a bit and I just, you know, felt like it was appropriate in this context. More with Wesley, including the Fourth Watch Lightning Round on Roy Wood Jr., Stocker Channing, and more. Available for paid subscribers of Fourth Watch on Substack. Go to fourthwatch.media to try it. Thanks so much to Wesley. Uh, always really enjoy conversations with him. Uh, I do think that conversations like the ones we're having are important and uh, hopefully can be mimicked throughout the rest of the media. I guess I won't hold my breath, but I can hope. Remember, Fourth Watch is not just a podcast, it's also a newsletter. Subscribe for free at fourthwatch.media. Join me. Let's build a better media together. If you like the music in this show as I do, check out the artist who created it, Super Duper. That's Super Duper Music on Instagram. Song is Far From Falling. Download it wherever you get your music and download, follow, and like, and rate and review this podcast, the Fourth Watch podcast, on Spotify, on Apple, or wherever you get your podcasts. Up next, I'm going to be joined by Emily Jashinsky of The Federalist, CounterPoints, Back soon. Stay safe. Talk to you then.